Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton has a new idea for affordable housing. We also chat about the nursing shortage, elderly drivers, election cybersecurity, Shohei Snubs T.O., and a unique sentence from a judge. GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. In an effort to address Hamilton's homelessness problem, the city of Hamilton is proposing to work with nonprofit organizations to turn five city-owned parking lots and vacant properties into affordable housing. And these locations are located in the East End, the North End, Stony Creek, even up on the mountain. Here to talk about it is Graham Cubitt, the Director of Projects and Development at Indwell. Graham, good morning. How are you today? Yeah, good morning, Rick. I'm great, thanks. Your thoughts on this idea? It's a great idea. It's, uh, it's a long time coming sort of conversation that's evolved over time, uh, but uh, fantastic to have city staff and, and council looking at, you know, using land that we don't need for city purposes anymore for the housing crisis. So it's a, it's a great idea overall. Why? I I agree it's a great idea, and you say it's a long time coming. Why has this sort of thing taken so long? You know, the city has a lot of properties, and I think sometimes it's just what's the priority for today. It's never really to look at the whole inventory and sort of do a theoretical study of what's possible on all the different sites. Uh, But a couple years ago, uh, that started to happen, and, you know, the real urgency of the housing crisis has become apparent to everybody. So I think it's you know, now surfacing as like a, a priority and leaning into it with GIC's decision last week. So, yeah, it's great to see some momentum in that direction. Is uh, Indwell going to be participating in this process? You know, the city talked to us about the five different sites uh, that were on, on the radar. Um, Indwell is part of the Hamilton's Home Coalition, so it was through that coalition uh, that the conversations were had with the city. Um, each of the sites has some merit. And for different organizations, different sites may be more suited. So sure, there's a, there's one or two there that Indwell would be interested in, in you know creating supportive housing particularly. But all of the sites that are identified, uh, I definitely have potential for within the coalition as supportive or affordable housing. When it comes to the timeline, these are vacant lands or or parking lots right now that aren't being used. How soon can we get affordable housing uh, in this process? That's to be worked out, I would say. Right now, the report didn't have sort of a mechanism to say how quickly those could be developed. The key mechanism is, uh, you know, ownership and, and all of that, obviously. But uh, there's also sort of how the funding from the city or the property from the city can be so-called monetized or, you know, how do you count that as part of the co-investment that the federal uh, CMHC co-investment program requires. So because we haven't worked out, you know, which organization would be interested in a specific site or an actual business plan for that project yet. I, I would say it's a few months before that gets going. But, I mean, ideally, all of these sites, if we all cooperated in the same direction, could have something happening by the end of the year. So this potentially could begin by the spring and maybe have some units, as you just said, by the end of next year. I would love to see this conversation advance to action uh, by this spring. What are some of the costs associated with this? How does this work cost-wise? Well, I don't know today's, uh, you know, sort of market value per unit, but, uh, you know, in the peak of the pricing sort of bubble, uh, maybe a year ago, two years ago, land was starting to get up 20, 30,000 per unit would be sort of a deal, you'd think. Now it's, you know, getting into 40. Sometimes people were even wanting 50,000 per unit, which is like ridiculous. So if it was a 20 unit building, you know, that'd be a million dollar land value. That's a real, uh, real cost savings to the nonprofit not having to buy that land. 
or that's a real benefit to the city and being able to contribute that land is their contribution to making affordable housing happen. So that's the starting point. And then from there, you know, there's all the fees and everything and Bill 23 has upended a lot of that. But, you know, there's just a, a lot of pieces of the puzzle that have to fit together. And really, it's about partnership. How can we as not-for-profits in a sense, partner with the city to achieve the outcomes our community needs. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Graham Cubitt, the Director of Projects and Development at Inwell. We're talking about the city proposing to work with uh, organizations like Inwell to turn five city-owned parking lots and vacant properties into affordable housing. These are not tiny shelters, though, right? Like, this would be no, multi-dwelling... housing. Say that again? Permanent housing, real buildings, uh, you know, for the long term, real apartments, uh, real land value, you know, bricks and mortar. Um, The key for ending homelessness is supportive housing. Uh, We need to build permanent housing that has supports embedded right into it. Uh, That can take many different shapes, sizes, forms, uh, demographics, but, uh, you know, sheds in a parking lot or, or, or tents that are sort of sanctioned on a site is it's kind of like triage you need to have it but uh, you know that's not really healthcare. so how do we create the permanent solutions i think the other thing is that with the affordable housing strategy and what the city's doing with this land is you know a lot of these are parking lots that are you know maybe parking some cars but uh, they really are functioning at a very sort of like utilitarian level and how can we sort of value value add the use of that land really and you know they're in great great neighborhoods, walkable communities, uh, places where people want to live. So, um, you know, the reality is that people who are experiencing homelessness right now aren't homeless people. They are people without homes. And, you know, as soon as they have a home, they're no longer homeless. And and the reality is that most people can put their life back together when given the right support. So we'd love to see these sites and many others actually uh, become part of the longer term solution. In our final minute together, is there any guesstimate on how many affordable housing units can be built on these five spaces? And could this be the start of something big? Well, I think it could be. Uh, there's uh, some small sites here, but you know, the one site that we weren't really uh, involved in the discussion on was 171 Main. And uh, that site actually has potential for two, maybe even 300 units. Um, we've written to the city, or, or at least those who wrote the report, and Councillor uh, Councillor Kretsch, who's the ward councillor for that that site, saying, "Hey, let's not throw away that opportunity to think about that as an affordable housing strategy, as well, because we need we need a lot of apartments that rent for a thousand dollars. We need a lot of apartments that rent, even at market rates." Um, and so as nonprofits, you know, we're pretty creative. We're, we're able to use the national housing strategy. We can see how CMHC can come to the table. There's five sites downtown, just in the downtown zone that could build over a thousand apartments, you know, probably starting it within a year. So why don't we look at some of those city owned sites as well? In addition to some of these like little surplus parcels. Yeah, let's get going. Graham, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us and uh, good luck with us. Anytime, and thanks very much, Rick. Graham Cubitt is the Director of Projects and Development at Indwell. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a very interesting story, and it has to do with nurses here in Hamilton, because some of them at Hamilton Health Sciences, who earn upwards of $92,000 a year, are being offered affordable one- and two-bedroom rental units this spring in the city's West End. This is uh, clearly an enticing offer that comes from a property management and development company by the name of Greenwood. And apart from sharing the news with its nurses, HHS says it is not behind this affordable housing plan. So what gives? 
Doris Grinspun is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Doris, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having us back. Have, have you ever heard of something like this before? Uh, not in this can- not in this province and little in this country, but you know this is not what is nice that they're offering it uh, now I understand it doesn't come from the hospital, but it will not solve the nursing crisis of course, what will solve the nursing crisis is for this hospital and others to ensure that nurses have competitive compensation, good benefits, and workloads that enable them to do good practice. So you mentioned compensation. I mean, these nurses who qualify have to have a total household income of 92000 or less. 92000 is a pretty good paycheck. Is it more than just the pay in this case, then? Uh, well, it might be a good paycheck, uh, but uh, for a whole family, uh, not necessarily sufficient uh, in a big city. Uh, but more importantly, nurses... Uh, are expecting a competitive compensation or no, that for a household is not competitive vis-a-vis Alberta, vis-a-vis Nova Scotia, even, not vis-a-vis, even worse vis-a-vis the U.S., right? So um, that's what nurses are expecting and not uh, an apartment. They expect to be able to pay by themselves the apartment. This, if anything, gives us a real glimpse of the challenges that hospitals, not only here in Hamilton, but really across the province, the challenges they are facing with recruitment and retention. Can you give us uh, a glimpse of what that looks like right now? It looks um, very difficult because even before the pandemic, Rick, uh, nurses already were absolutely overworked and underpaid. And even before the pandemic, nurses already uh, were uh, exiting the system. Uh, So with the pandemic, where they work literally um, nonstop, as you know, they cancel vacations, even in the Hamilton, in all the hospitals, quite frankly, in everywhere. Um, They cancel vacations. They stay on on the place to deliver the best to patients. They work uh, double time. They work a long, long shift, they stay away from their families. Um, and post-pandemic, they are exhausted still, uh, working again because there is a shortage, very, very long shift. And they, they don't feel uh, valued the way they should. And on top of that, as you remember, Ontario uh, had Bill 124. So that sent a horrible message to nurses where they basically said, we are, we are not... Uh, valued in uh, Ontario because other jurisdictions didn't have a Bill 124, as you know. So nurses are health professionals uh, that deserve to be fully recognized in the system as such, and organizations need to uh, do all they can to retain nurses and to recruit new ones. But Recruit Melanor Rick will not do it because they will continue to live if they don't feel valued by the organizations. Do you think um, Do you think you know, this affordable housing uh, enticement, let's just call it that, will you know uh, be very uh, uh, acceptable to nurses who are out there and, and, and entice them to come to Hamilton? Well, the reality is, how many units are you talking? Well, that's to be. Uh, that's to be seen. I know. I know. There's a f- there is a large number of nurses. I can assure you, it's not for all nurses, right? 
So this is this is a calling attention, not not solving the problem, which is a good thing that the person is doing that. The the question is why are they doing it? But that's a secondary question. It's nice that they're doing it, but that's not the solution to the shortage. What is, because HHS has a shortage of like 700 nurses, what impact is that having not only on the nurses, but the level of care they're able to deliver? Well, if you have nurses that are having uh, 30, 40 percent above what is an expected workload, that absolutely reflects in quality because they cannot attend with the same attention to detail and with the same speed as they would otherwise. Also, you have usually increased sick time, which then is a cycle to more heavy workloads for those in place. So the, the situation for this hospital was uh, before even, why didn't they speak against Bill 124? And I've been asking this from all the CEOs in all the organizations when they knew that that was detrimental because nurses will leave either to work in an agency, which many did, or they will or they will leave the province on the or the country altogether. The, the reality is they need to now focus on building careers for nurses right there in the hospital in Hamilton, meaning career progression, support for education, decreasing the workload so they can deliver the excellent care that they come every day to do, and speaking with the hospital association about not fighting nurses and with the government about not fighting nurses, but actually being on the same side of the street so we all together can attend the, the patients in the way they deserve. That That's be, what that nurses want. That's th- what we are asking. That's what also the union is asking. That would be a nice change for once. Doris, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Rick, and happy holidays if I don't speak with you again. Same to you. Doris Grinspun is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Elderly drivers are back in the news. What is that age that old people reach where they decide when they back out of a driveway, they're not looking anymore? (laughs) You know how they do that? They just go, well, I'm old and I'm coming back. I survived. Let's see if you can. According to the Auditor General's report, Ontario's considering implementing an enhanced driver's test for those over the age of 80. Now, right now, if you're in that age bracket, 80 plus, you have to renew your license every two years. You also have to take a senior driver education session, which includes a vision test. You have to draw a clock, which measures cognitive abilities. But the AG said that it does not examine motor function and coordination, concentration, hearing ability, and spatial perception and reaction time. And it sounds like all of that is coming in an enhanced test by 2026 at the earliest is what we're what we're hearing. Our poll question of the day on Friday, we asked you, are you in favor of Ontario introducing an enhanced road test for drivers over 80? And 76% of you said Yes. Let's ask our next guest about this. Angelo DeSico is a special project manager with the Ontario Safety League and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Angelo, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing alive and well, and hopefully everyone else is too. Great to hear. Um, First and foremost, tell us about the Ontario Safety League. What do you look at? So the Ontario Safety League has been around since 1913 in my office, and I'm uh, 
general manager now, I'll have you know. There's a picture of the 1913 auto uh, auto exhibition down at uh, uh, Princess Gate, uh, and there's Ford, uh, what do you call them, the Model 1s. And so since then, we've been involved in uh, driver education. We've graduated thousands of driving instructors across the province since then. But we do a fair amount of work and public advocacy for older and senior drivers. And myself, I'm a driver rehabilitation specialist. So I'm one of those people involved in um, helping seniors make the decision it's time to give up their license or uh, the me medical community or the government strongly suggesting or telling people it, that time has come. That's got to be a tough conversation with the individual who's been driving for decades. And I would guess, you know, many cases they feel they're okay. Yeah. And because age, uh, like a lot of things, comes along slowly one day at a time. And as we get older, like every 10 years of age, you require twice as much visible light to see the exact same thing with acuity. So that's why people don't like driving at night as they get older. You can't see as well. And with cognitive and spatial abilities, those things can go slowly. But it's not only that. There are physical restrictions. I'm getting older, and it's harder for me to perform certain tasks and maybe turning my head all the way around. Some people are restrained from being able to do a proper blind spot check because their neck and shoulders won't turn that far. So there, this is a very complex issue. So when it comes to the 80-plus aged driver, it sounds like it's a good idea to retest them or at least enhance what we're testing them on. Well, for sure, because again, very few seniors, they're wise and intelligent. We know that because they're still alive <laughs> and they're driving. So they've self-selected to be able to perform to a, a certain degree or level. But most of them wouldn't mind knowing if there was something they could do that would extend their ability to be driving longer. And personally, I've always had the latest in technology. And it's so surprising when I'm dealing uh, with people of any age that they've paid five to $10,000 for incredibly safe uh, new technology in their vehicle of which they're not aware. Hmm. So the Jerry Seinfeld episode we just listened to, hey, part of your circle check, clean the salt and sand off of the rear camera and glance at that before you're backing out of the driveway. That's technology. It works pretty good. Yeah. And it isn't going away. Yeah, use it to your advantage. Angela DeSico is the general manager with the Ontario Safety League. And as you heard, a driver's rehabilitation specialist as well. You can check them out online at OntarioSafetyLeague.com. I would assume that, you know, when you're 80 plus and you've kind of referenced it, that obviously the body has changed, the vision isn't as good. Are there things that this age group can do to get better? Of course. And again, it isn't the magic age of 80. There is a large swath and sway. My oldest student last year was 92. Who wow. and cognitively really, you know, with it and actually um, 
um, the motor functions were quite good. However, I did help some people after a stroke, and they were quite younger, just slightly older than me, but they didn't have the physical ability. The tough one is when you start to see some slips in cognitive perception and ability, and you're saying that the next set of lights will turn right. And that's five seconds later, they go through the intersection because they've already forgot hmm. that instruction. You know, then you need deeper delving into uh, their safety be to be on the roadway with the rest of us and for their family's uh, sake and, and their own good fortune. And that's the main thing. We want to keep everyone, not only those behind the wheel, but others on the road, on pedestrian sidewalk, pedestrian crosswalks, on the sidewalk, safe as well. Angela, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Everyone, have a great day and uh, use the technology you paid for. You got it. Angela DeSico, the general manager of the Ontario Safety League online at OntarioSafetyLeague.com. Some good uh, tips to go on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new report out from the Communications Security Establishment. It's Canada's electronic spy agency. And this new report suggests that our next federal election is going to be a big target for cyber threats, for deep fakes, for hacking. Shows that more than 25% of election campaigns around the world last year, 25%, involved at least one cyber threat. That's up 23% from 2021. This is a serious concern. Sammy Curry is the head of the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Sammy, good morning. How are you? Fine, thanks. And you, Rick. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm fantastic. This uh, report suggesting our federal election is going to be a big target for cyber threats, deepfakes, and hacking. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, we're issuing the report to warn Canadians that that is actually a possibility and we want them to be prepared. So what are we seeing going on right now? What are you going to be looking for when the next election does happen? There's a couple of things that worry us. One, I mean, we are mainly concerned about cyber threat activity and cyber-enabled influence campaigns. So from a cyber threat perspective, we will be working with Election Canada as we have been working over the years to make sure that the infrastructure of the, of the election is secure. But also the influence campaign that are cyber enabled, we have to warn everybody about the possibility of, of you know, deep fakes and the use of artificial intelligence to amplify misinformation. Are there, are there little hints or red flags that should alert people to say, you know what, I, this isn't true? I think we, we all have to be on our guard. There's so much misinformation out there now that we have to be on our guard all the time. We have to know where we're getting our news, who's behind the news, and to maybe look at it with a critical eye. There is no magic uh, fake news detector or, or magical misinformation detector. So we all have to do our part to make sure that we get our news from reliable sources. When it comes to hacking, what is being done to prevent hacking from being part of the next federal election? Um, so a few things also. We're work, so as I mentioned, we're working with Election Canada to make sure that the infrastructure itself is, is, um, is secure. But we're also, uh, you know, briefing political parties, briefing candidates. We have a 24-hour hotline for the candidates to call in case, you know, they suspect anything uh, malicious. We have been briefing also the provincial and territorial election authorities. So we're doing a lot behind the scene to make sure that the 
the, the infrastructures, the servers, the systems are secure so that they can withstand, uh, hopefully, a, 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 cyber, a cyber activity or a cyber hack. Sammy Curry is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Sammy is the head of the Canadian Centre for Cyber Security as we reflect on a new report from the Communications Security Establishment that says our next federal election is going to be a big target for hacking and cyber threats and deepfakes. We had a huge kerfuffle on Parliament Hill earlier this year in relation to foreign election interference, and apparently it's been happening for years. Is it only going to get worse yeah, I mean, for Canada is a, is a player on the geopolitical scene, and, and we know that, uh, you know, other countries might want to take advantage of that to uh, disrupt or to uh, mess with our elections. So uh, for as long as we continue to be a player on, on the scene, we should expect uh, those foreign countries, and we name Russia and China as the number one and two, or the, the top two that uh, play in that space. And when it comes to um, you know, fixing the system or identifying issues, is that becoming also easier or harder to do? It's becoming actually harder to do, and, and cyber threat actors are really getting better at hiding their tracks. So uh, in the report, we mentioned that last year, 85% of those cyber activity went unattributable. It means we couldn't put a, a name next to them because they're getting way better at hiding them. So we can detect the activity, but to point out who's behind it is, is getting harder. Is there an ability to do more, do something better, and are we learning from other nations who are doing it better? We're doing we're doing a lot, and actually, if anything, I would say we're doing uh, we're, we're being looked at maybe as somebody who's doing a lot. But it's important to pay attention to the advice and guidance that we put out, the publications that we put out, the warnings that we put out, because we know a lot of things, and we want Canadians to be on their guard. Um, so when we put out an advisory about misinformation, we hope that everybody will read it and pay attention to it. And when we issue a cyber flash about the cyber activity, also we want organizations to pay attention and to defend their networks. That makes a lot of sense. Sammy, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for uh, shining a Thank light you. on this issue. Thank you very much, Rick. Sammy Khoury is the head of the Canadian Centre for Cyber Security. Again, this uh, new report suggests that Cyber threats, deepfakes, hacking is going to be a big part of the next federal election, whether it is in 2024 or 2025, whenever it comes, it's going to be a target, as was clearly, (laughs) in terms of what we found out earlier on this year at Parliament Hill, as was the last one, as will the one after that, and each and every one after. It is uh, with today's technology As you heard from Sammy, it's becoming easier for these bad actors to infiltrate our system of influence, whether it's through social media or websites or whatever the case is. Uh, Good chat with Sammy Corey from the Canadian Centre for Cyber Security. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. He's now the newest high roller in MLB. Single to score in the first. Swing and a drive out to right field. That one's got a chance and it's gone! Grand slam, Shohei Otani! Uh, that would have sounded great at uh, the Rogers Center, but uh, unless it's interleague play, you're not going to hear that. Unless the Jays are playing the Dodgers, you won't hear it either because Shohei Otani, the great hitter and pitcher, has signed with the Dodgers. And not only that, a mega deal. And the deal of all deals in the major leagues Ten years, seven hundred million dollars, an annual average annual value of seventy million per season. To put that in perspective, 
The Chicago Blackhawks have an annual payroll this season of $73 million. Shohei will earn nearly as much as the entire Chicago Blackhawks. In fact, you put together the payroll of all nine CFL teams, which is $49 million. Shohei is earning more than every player in the CFL on an active roster. How crazy is that? Scott Radley is the host of The Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML weeknights from 6 till 8 and a columnist with the Hamilton Spectator and joins us now on GMH. Scott, good morning. How are you? I am well. So how does it feel now to have someone in your pay grade as a partner? You know, I needed the company, let me tell you. Me and and Lionel Messi really needed the company. Uh, Listen, (laughs) this is bonkers. It, It is. And, you know, it was a really interesting story when the Jays were in the mix and we were hearing about 500 million and i think you could as crazy and look i understand how this sounds but as as much as 500 million dollars is an absurd amount of money to give to someone to play a sport i i can i believe you could have made a business sense for rogers owners of the blue jays at that number because not only are you getting basically two really good players because he pitches and he hits mm-hmm. and a top player at each of those positions is going to be at least $25 million. But also the business spin-off, business marketing, Japanese TV rights, all those kind of things, you probably could have made that money back. But at $70 million, which let's not forget is in American money, so we're talking probably close to $100 million a year I got to tell you, if I'm a Jays fan, I am I am actually relieved that they didn't get him because you know as well as I do, Rick, you got to sign Vladimir Guerrero Jr. You got to sign Bo Bichette. They see a deal like that, well, they're going to want theirs. And I don't believe for a second Rogers is going to be running a five hundred million dollar payroll every year. So I, my concern, if I'm a Jays fan, would have been as the numbers got into the truly absurd territory who's left other than Shohei Otani in a couple of years it may have been him and a bunch of guys named Rick and Scott yeah and with every deal like this it sets a new benchmark although because he is an elite hitter and an elite pitcher even though he's not going to pitch next year because of he had his second uh, operation on his on his pitching elbow you're getting almost two players in one. So even though this sets a benchmark, I can't really see any other player hitting that benchmark for years to come. Uh, no, that benchmark. But uh, the $35 million, though, now, if you are a, let's say, a top 20 player as a hitter or top 20 as a pitcher, I guess $35 million might be the expected benchmark. Uh, I mean, look, it, salaries in sports, of course, are are crazy. This, yeah. You're right. This is only going to drive them up. The, you know, the, the the interesting, the most interesting part about this story to me, though, are the conspiracy theories. And I don't know that they're conspiracy theories. I mean, they're theories right now, but there's lots of people writing about them and talking about them. That this whole story on Friday of the plane coming up to Toronto was essentially... <laughs> either a plant by his agents or they saw something about this plane and decided to jump on it to create his, the story is that he always really wanted to be a Dodger and the Jays were never really in contention, but they were being used as a fulcrum to exert pressure on the Dodgers. And so this whole thing with the plane and him maybe coming was to make the Dodgers panic and up the ante. And I'll tell you, that's a, 
I don't know, Rick, I, I don't know what word you would use if that's true, uh, either really clever or really slimy. And I'll tell you why I say, why I throw the word slimy in there. How many times have we in Hamilton have been that team, like the Blue Jays, right. when someone was talking about moving an NHL team? Hey, we'll bring them to Hamilton only because they never had any intention of coming here. They were just trying to exert pressure on the city they're in. And if you're, if you're the Blue Jays, and if there's any truth to this story, that they never were really in it, they were only the team that was being used as the useful idiots to try and drive up the Dodgers' price. My goodness, that is, that is an incredible level of disrespect considering how much time and effort and everything else the Jays' brass put into this thing. And now, because of all this, they're way behind the eight ball. The other best player they had their eyes on got traded to the Yankees already. The mm-hmm. free agent market has nothing remotely similar to this. And the fan base is completely dejected because they didn't get this thing. Like, it, 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 this is, you know, that old uh, mighty Casey at the bat. It's, a, it's, a, it's great that that's a baseball poem because it's very apt here. Yeah, and all, all the while, all the while, the Jays have spent, what, $300 million refurbishing their stadium? Yeah, yeah. But if Casey had hit the home run in that poem, oh man, it's the greatest thing ever. But that poem ends very sadly because Casey struck out. There's no, there's no prize in baseball for swinging and missing. Yeah. Even if it was exciting along the way, there's no prize for swinging and missing. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't know how people will see Shohei Otani in light of all this in Los Angeles. I'm sure they'll see him as, uh, you know, a conquering hero. But around other places, including and especially in Toronto. I think Shohei Otani might have just made himself baseball's biggest villain. Could be. That is a lot of coin for sure. Scott, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. See you, Rick. Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show on CHML. Weeknight 6 to 8, and you can read them in the Hamilton Spectator. It really, this whole story of $700 million over 10 years really paints a picture of how far behind the National Hockey League is from other sports here in North America. Because, well, Shohei's the top-paid baseball player at $70 million. Uh, Damian Lillard is the top basketball paid basketball player at $60.9 million. Joe Burrow makes the most money per season in the National Football League at $55 million. All those guys, $50 million and plus. The top-paid player in the NHL is Nathan McKinnon at $12.6 million. Oh, he's going to be usurped next year by Austin Matthews, who will make $13.25 million. That would be a steal in the major leagues. That's the top paid players in the NHL. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A woman in Ohio convicted of assault after she threw food at a fast food restaurant employee and has now been sentenced to a, well, unique penalty. So here is this 39-year-old woman, Rosemary Hain is her name, who ordered a burrito bowl at Chipotle, wasn't satisfied with the original burrito bowl. So 26-year-old Emily Russell, the then Chipotle store manager, remade the thing. And even after that, this 39-year-old said, no, it wasn't good enough. So she approaches Russell, they get into a heated argument, and she throws the bowl at Emily. Hain was arrested, originally set to pay a fine and serve 180 days in jail with 90 days suspended. Instead, the judge said, you know what, you can cut that to 60 days 
if she serves her just desserts at a temporary fast food job. So Hain agreed to work 20 hours a week in a fast food joint for 60 days, and she's got to complete that by March. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer, a legal expert and media commentator, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ari, good morning. Good morning to you in Hamilton. Some people are calling the judge's sentence unconventional. Others say, yeah, it is just desserts. I love it. What is your reaction? Well, just desserts is too easy, so I'm not going to use that one. But in any event, uh, I think there's pros and cons to it. There's a part of me that likes it. There's a part of me that questions it. Why do I like it? Anything that you can do, and remember, U.S. sentencing is different. They actually, depending on where you are, and certain states and certain cities, take crime seriously, unlike the argument can be made in Canada, where you can do a whole bunch of things and barely see the inside of a jail cell. But when you have somebody that really doesn't need to be separated from society, I like how unique, original, and creative this sentence was. Now, is it that original and creative? I'm not sure because this is literally a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. <laughs> I mean a real one that somebody can look up where Larry David was sentenced to wearing a placard to shame him for a very funny escapade taking cutlery out of a restaurant to his limo driver. And I am being serious. I'm not <laughs> making that up or scripting a show. So whether the judge had watched that the night before is possible but I like it when judges are creative and we live and work in a system now. I work in a system where there is absolutely no creativity, none. Everything is done the way it was done yesterday. There is very little out of the box thinking unless you touch on certain third rail uh, issues like race and background, which we don't have time to get into. Mm. So I like that aspect to teach this lady a lesson of what it's like to work in fast food for minimum wage or just over and have you know disgusting customers being rude and mean to you the flip side of why i don't love it is what employer really wants to hire somebody for two months yeah and does it send a message potentially that working in fast food is sort of the equivalent to being in jail and you know i'm 49 years old i grew up in a world where you know young people who wanted to pay tuition have some extra spending money they would flip burgers at mcdonald's they would actually understand hard work which a younger generation has absolutely no clue of they think that hard work means saying i want to be the president of harvard and without earning it you become the president of harvard so that's why I think that there's some downside to it to sort of insult this work that used to be a fast track to corporate management, being a manager at a McDonald's. But I'll take creativity over a lack of creativity any day of the week. Absolutely. we got about a minute. Uh, I, obviously, civil damages is going to play a part in this as well. I'm sure this individual is going to take the other person to court in, in part of a civil um, uh, court case. Uh, this could not happen in Canada, right? There's no judge that could do this. Well, they could, but they won't because they're all afraid of being slapped or called a bunch of names depending on the demographic of the person they mm. sentence. There are many, many judges in Canada who I think would like to be creative but are worried about being you know, slapped back. Probation orders could be creative. House arrest sentences could have creative conditions. Everybody is unwilling to push the envelope and I don't think you can have a truly responsive justice system 
until some people start to take away the crude thing of jail, which for certain people is not needed, and sentence them to other creative things that pay back a debt that is different than spending three nights in jail. Save jail for the people that really need it. It's a great hot take by Ari Goldkind. Ari, thanks for the time this morning. Good to be with you. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer, media commentator, joining us here on GMH. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.